I'm standing here thinking, that's not fair. I have to follow that. I should have had y'all sing at the end of the service. Take those Bibles and open them up to Romans chapter 3. If you're finding your place this morning, I want to highlight an, an important announcement for today. And at the end of the service, we're going to be uh, handing out some materials that are related to an event, an opportunity that's happening at the end of May. At the end of May, uh, there's an opportunity for ladies to participate in a Surrendering the Secret Uh, weekend retreat. If I may read something from what I'm going to give you at the end of the service, in it it says that millions millions of women hold the secret of their abortion inside and many are suffering severe consequences. There is hope and there is help. The Surrendering the Secret Weekend Retreat enables women to release this burden and find freedom through the honest, interactive study of God's Word, meaningful group experiences, unique journaling exercises, and confidential caring community. This powerful, redemptive study helps hurting women find healing. And so with that in mind, Right there, there, There's a lot of things that I could say at this point, and so I want to choose my words really wisely. Uh, there are all types of statistics that I could share with you, and I would love to be able to share with you all of them, but I'll give you just a few. A few statistics related to abortion that gives me the greatest concern and probably the deepest frustration are statistics like 43% of women who have an abortion had their abortion while at the same time regularly attending church. 7% of them have said that they only, only 7% of them discuss the, the, the abortion decision with someone within their church. Only 7%. Probably because less than 50% of women believe that their church was willing and ready to offer them any type of help or assistance in their time of need. I mean, something's got to change. We've got to do better than what we're doing. It is not enough for us to speak with our words and declare that abortion is wrong. Our words must be met with action. So yes, we speak and we declare God's truth about what He says about life and how life should be embraced and life should be valued, but we got to do more than just say the words. We've got to be willing to match those words with action in our lives, and we have to be willing as a church and as individuals, to say that we will do whatever it takes to help women in their time of great need. And so we have an opportunity here in the next few weeks of, uh, of being able to encourage you to participate in a Surrender the Secret weekend retreat. At the end of the service today, there will be volunteers at all of our doors, so you can't escape it. 
Every single woman will receive a pamphlet. Take it. I'm not going to set up a table and say, hey, if this is you, go to the table. Thus drawing attention to yourself, drawing attention to a past decision. That's not what this is about. This is the reality that there are many of you individually, and there are many more of those to whom you know that have made this decision in their life. And they need help, and they need healing. And so we will give every single woman a pamphlet today. We ask that you take that pamphlet and prayerfully consider your response to the information. This might be something for you to participate in, or this might be an opportunity for you to reach out to someone else to share that information to them so that they can be a part of it. Now, if you have any questions related to this specific opportunity, let me point you to a couple of people that will help you out a lot better than I would be able to. The first one is Tina. Tina, go ahead and stand right here. Tina is here. She is a, a, a counselor within uh, the uh, Highland Lakes Pregnancy and Life Center, and you're also a facilitator for this weekend retreat. And so Tina's a church member. She'll be glad to handle any of your questions. But we also have others. I'll invite uh, Denise is in the back in her regular spot. Casey is in the back in her regular spot. you got to stand. So Denise and Casey are both uh, ladies whom uh, they serve on the board of directors uh, for the Pregnancy and Life Center. So they'll be glad to help entertain any questions that you might have as well. Look, we're all in as a church, and we pray that you will be all in as individuals to value life. You can go ahead and be seated, Tina. Life should be embraced, not erased. With that being said, Bible's open to Romans chapter 3. To this point, Paul has taken the time and has charged both Jews and and Greeks or Jews and Gentiles to be guilty before God. Next, he is going to further declare that all men are sinners. And he proves it by uh, referencing several quotations that are found uh, within the Old Testament Scriptures. And as we work through our next section of Scripture, I want you to notice the repetition of words like none and all. As you see these words, it helps to remind us all of the universal guilt of sin that is possessed by all humanity. Now, a a disclaimer as we get started, a, a term that I will often use today is the term the natural man. The natural man. The natural man is simple, simply a way of stating all humanity, men and women, that are apart from a relationship with God and faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So that's a non-believer, an unsaved individual, a natural man. With that being said, let's begin in verse number 9. Verse number 9 says, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. So, as evidence that the Jews have no preferred position, Paul states again, we've already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. That is, the Jews and the Greeks, all of humanity is under sin's power, under sin's control, 
All the Jews and the Greeks are under uh, the sins or God's wrath and condemnation as a result of sin. It's all equal. He started this back in chapter 1, verse number 18. There Paul wrote and says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Then again in chapter 2, verse number 5, Paul writes the words, But because of your stubbornness and unrepented heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. You see, in chapter 1, Paul gives his attention primarily to the Greeks or to the Gentiles and their condemnation before God. In chapter 2, beginning specifically in verse number 17, his attention shifts to the sinfulness that was present among the Jews. So he brings all of it to a conclusion here in chapter 3 in verse number 9, for we've already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. So to validate his accusation that everybody is under sin, from verses 10 through verse number 18, Paul is going to make reference to six different Old Testament passages. In doing so, he's going to give a series of specific charges against all humanity. And these specific charges can be broken down into two major categories. The first category from verses 10 through 12 would be concerning the character of the natural man. The character. Then from verses 13 through verse 17 or 18, we'll see the conduct of natural man. So the two major sections that that Paul is going to address in respect to the sinfulness of everyone is in respect to their character and their conduct. After all, our conduct is an outflow of the character that we have. And so today we're going to camp out with the first section. We're going to just spend our time through verses 10 through 12 as we look at the character of the natural man. And so verse 10 says, As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. And I hope that we can hear and see the heaviness of, of what Paul is declaring here. Paul is referencing back to Old Testament Scripture, specifically Psalm chapter 14. Psalm chapter 14, verses 1 through 3, look how similar it is. It says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside together. They have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. So so Paul 
starts off by making the point that all people without exception are corrupt. All people without exception fail in righteousness. And he, he, he ties this declaration to Psalm chapter 14, verse number 1, and to clearly show that all of humanity stands before God as corrupt. Righteousness is a major theme in the book of Romans. When you look at it, you see righteousness throughout Romans, it appears in one form or another more than 30 times. Then when you take into consideration uh, words like justification or justified, which share the same root in the Greek as the word righteousness, that number goes from more than 30 times to more than 60 times in the letter to the Romans alone. With that in mind, it's no surprise that what Paul starts off with is his charge that the natural man is unrighteous. The fact remains that outside of our Lord and Savior, there's not a single person that has lived, that is living, or that will live that can be characterized as possessing and demonstrating perfect righteousness according to the standard of God. Not a single individual. In other words, apart from Jesus, no person has ever lived a perfect life. Perfect in thought. Perfect in word. Perfect in action. <laughs> but the Gospel of Jesus tells us, as Paul's going to lay out later in Romans, and as other places in Scripture declare, the Gospel of Jesus tells us that we can't become perfectly righteous ourselves when the righteousness of Jesus is imputed on us. And that's a beautiful story. The very truth that, that makes the gospel the good news is that God has provided a way for the imperfect to become perfect. And the only way that the imperfect can become perfect is entirely by the grace of God through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. So not only is the natural man corrupt, well, well, the natural man is ignorant. The text, verse number 11, Paul says that there is none who understand. None. In Psalm chapter 14, verse number 2, David wrote the words, The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men, to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. I want you to understand that the natural man has no ability on their own to fully comprehend God's truth or to fully know and understand His standard of righteousness. The, the, the natural man has no ability to understand it. Not a single person can grasp, can comprehend, or can perceive the things of God. Not in their natural state. That word understand that Paul uses here literally means to, to put things together. To make the connection, right? And the natural man has no ability on their own to put these things together. 
It means that they have no ability to, to look at things and to intelligently discern and comprehend the truth of God's Word. On our own, we can't do it. We are completely unable of the ability to, to do it. We, it's not in us. Other places in Scripture, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse number 14. I'll get there. There. Oh, I'm way off. Come on, where where'd I go? Help me out here. First Corinthians chapter two, verse number fourteen says that a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised you understand the significance of what i just read the natural man does not accept the things of the spirit of god their foolishness he says he can't understand them because they're spiritually appraised they don't have a spiritual mind therefore they are completely unable of being able to comprehend in ephesians chapter 4 Paul says it this way in verses 17 and 18. Paul says, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. Paul says there that we're walking in the futility of our mind because of ignorance that is within us and the hardening of our heart. But do you get what that means? I love how John MacArthur gives clarity to this reality. And I have the quote in there somewhere. Hey, thank you for helping me out. Thank you. So to this point, listen to what MacArthur had to say. He says, men are not sinful and hardened against God because they are ignorant of Him, but to the contrary, they are ignorant of Him because of their sinful and hardened condition. People have a certain sense about God through the testimony of creation. That's what we talked about Romans chapter 1, right? And, and also through the witness of their conscience, again, Romans chapter 2. Then he says, but their willfully sinful nature blocks out that testimony and witness. The natural man is thereby hardened in his heart and darkened in his mind. He not only does not understand God, but has no inclination to do so. This is some heavy stuff. And I can get, some of you are like hearing this today, and you're like, whoa, wait, what, what, what are we really saying here? Well, bear with me, because I've got more to say. The natural man, on her own, corrupt, spiritually ignorant. Not only that, we're rebellious against God. Back to Romans 3, verse 11, says, there, there is none who understand, there is none who seeks for God. 
Again, Psalm chapter 14, verse number 2, says that the Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. And so this statement has caused so much controversy and confusion. Think about it. How many times have you heard it said of someone who does not claim identity with Christ, they're not a believer, they're not a Christ follower, how many times have you heard it said of someone that, well, that person might not be a believer, but at least they're searching after God. At least they're seeking God. You heard that before? Surely you have, right? If that's the case, and a non-believer is at least searching for God, If that's true, then Paul must be wrong. I mean, the Apostle Paul says that no one in their natural condition seeks for God. None. But but how is it that, that we often feel as though or say or claim that other people are searching for God? And by the way, doesn't that go against what Scripture tells us? Doesn't the Bible command us to to seek after God? To search and to keep on searching? To knock and to keep on knocking? You've heard things like that? Yeah, of course you've heard it because Jesus said these things. Jesus says in in Matthew chapter 6, verse number 33, He says, but first seek His kingdom and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Right Then Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, verse number 7, He says, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. So, take in mind, what Jesus just said, does it at all contradict what Paul has just said? My answer is no. Not at all. You've got to understand that when Jesus was giving those instructions, He was giving them to believers. He was giving them to His disciples. Those that were following Him. He wasn't giving those instructions to non-believers. It is only believers who have the ability to seek after God. Outside of the faith, outside of belief, no one searches for God. It is highly improper, but more importantly, it is biblically inaccurate to say lost people are seeking for God. The whole of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, describes the sovereign God. The sovereign God is the one that is searching for and seeking to save that which is lost. Scripture testifies. Luke chapter 19, verse number 10. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. With that in mind, then then why does it seem or why does it appear uh, that non-believers are actually searching for God? 
I love how, how Thomas Aquinas has wrapped his mind around this concept. And I love the, the clarity that someone who lived in the 1200s could, could bring insight to us today. Listen to how he wrestles with this conclusion. He says the reason we think people are seeking after God when they're not is that they are desperately and earnestly seeking for those things that only God can give them. Happiness, meaning, freedom from guilt, peace. All of these benefits accrue to those who put their faith in Christ. So so as believers, we know that only God can provide these things. So we tend to just jump to the conclusion that since they're looking for things that only God can provide, then that must mean that they're seeking and searching after God. To which Thomas Aquinas, he would say, no, not at all. They're not searching for God. They want the benefits of God without God. No one in their natural mind seeks for God. No one. That, that natural man, our sinful nature, is corrupt, spiritually ignorant, rebellious. And the fourth charge, the natural, mind, the natural man or the, the, the sinful nature, the fourth charge is that everyone has turned aside. Everyone. Paul continues his quote, but he continues in verse number 12. He says, All have turned aside. Together they've become useless. And here he's continuing from Psalm chapter 14, verse number 3, where David says that they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Turning aside has the basic meaning of leaning in the wrong direction. So the inability for the natural man to to seek or to search for God does not render the natural man incapable of moving. No, what it does, it means they're, they're moving in the wrong direction. Instead of moving towards God, they're actually on a course that leads to destruction. Here's the reality about the character of the natural man. The natural man is naturally evil. They're naturally ignorant of God's truth. They're naturally rebellious against God. And they will inevitably, naturally, seek to live a a life apart from the will of God. That's the natural man. This reality is, is kind of wrapped up and clarified quite clearly from the prophet Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah writes in Isaiah chapter 53, Verse number 6, he says, All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Paul says that there is a logical outcome to our corruption 
to our spiritual ignorance, to our rebellion, and to our turning aside. It says there's a natural outcome of that reality. In verse number 12, he says, all have turned aside, and then he continues, and he says, together they have become useless. Useless. The Hebrew equivalent to the Greek term that's translated here as useless was often used to describe milk that had become sour or rancid. That's the outcome of the natural man. Useless, of no value in what they can offer. That's why Paul says in verse number 12, they turn aside, together they become useless. That's why he says there is none who does good. There is not even one. None who do good. And think about that. How many, how many times have we said ourselves, well, well, they might not be a Christ follower, but look at all the good that they do. No. Scripture says that apart from Christ, there's not a single individual that does anything that is good. And think about the indictment that he just said. There is none who does good. Not even one. None. How, how, how is that possible? Is Paul saying that unless a, a person believes and trusts and follows after Christ Jesus, then they'll never do a good deed? That they're incapable of doing good? Is that what, what Paul is saying? Is it? Yes! That's exactly what he's saying. On our own, we are so corrupt that our sin infects even the best choices that we could make in life. When God examines our actions, when God examines our deeds, He considers it both in terms of external action and internal motivation or desires. There's an external and an internal component that God gives consideration to. For example, think about Jesus in His teaching, Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So the command has been violated, not because of external action. It was violated because of internal motivations or internal attitude. So the two didn't match. Other, other examples. Think about stealing. It's against the law to steal, right? But if I refrain from stealing, then I've only have done half of what the good deed is. I've only fulfilled the external component of that deed. We're told in Scripture that, that man judges outward appearance, but God looks where? God looks upon the heart. God, God sees the heart. God knows the motive. God knows the desire of the individual. And the fact of the matter, from a biblical perspective, 
To do a good deed requires both the external action falls in line with the Word and the will of God and the internal behavior or the internal attitude must be from a desire to please, to honor, to glorify God. So the natural man is unable to carry out a good deed from a biblical perspective because although your their behavior might give the appearance of being in accordance with the word, their internal motivation doesn't match. They're not doing the good deed to honor God, to praise the Father, to bring glory to His name. So although my outward acts may reflect the external demands of the law, if they do not spring from a heart that truly loves God, then they're motivated by some other selfish desire. This is just dealing with the character of the natural man. This applies to everyone apart from Christ. We all start off this way. Some of us remain this way. I wonder if we ever take seriously just what Paul's trying to say to us to help us to understand just how desperate the world needs Jesus. On our own, the best that we can offer a holy and righteous God is corruption, spiritual ignorance, a rebellious attitude, going our own way, useless actions, unable to do any good. That's the best we've got. Oh, but but thanks be unto God that God had a plan to, to, to redeem mankind. God had a plan to credit our unrighteousness with the righteousness of His Son. There's this double transaction that occurs as a result of Calvary and a result of God's grace of faith in Jesus Christ. That when we confess Him as Lord and we believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead, then what happens is is all of our sin, all of our junk, everything that defiles us before the holiness and the righteousness of God is credited to Jesus and what He accomplished on the cross. But then there's another credit transaction that happens. He gets our sin. He gets our junk. He gets all all of our unrighteousness. And in return, on taking that for himself, he turns around and credits us with his righteousness. It's all about Jesus. We have nothing to take credit for. We have nothing to boast on our own, we'll never seek after God. On our own, we won't do anything that's good. We're completely unable to. Now this, I get it, this is going to create a lot more questions in us. Be patient. We're going, we're going to go through all of it. We're going to get there. We're going to get to what does that mean? But, but here, here, here's what I'm trying to say. 
Yes, on our own, we can do nothing good. On our own, we'll never seek and search for God. But how do I know salvation is made available? Or what is the means by which salvation is extended? Well, that's through the preaching and the teaching of His Word. So we will preach His Word, we'll teach His Word, we'll proclaim His Word to every single person that we can. Trusting that God will do what God has planned and purposed before the foundation of the world. But we'll treat all people equal in the sense that all people are in desperate need of salvation. May we do a much better job of having the urgency to share the gospel with everyone. May we truly understand what God's word expects from us and for us. And may we live a life of faithful obedience unto him. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your great love for us. Thank you for for your offer of salvation and redemption to mankind. Father, forgive us all for failing to have the urgency of sharing that with all people. We've got to do better, Father. Far too often, we spend most of our times griping and complaining about the sinful condition of our nation and our world and reality. All we need to realize is that the natural man is going to do what the natural man desires, and that is whatever pleases him. The natural man will never bend its knees to to seek to live their lives in accordance to your word apart from a heart transformation that only occurs through faith in Jesus. But Father, instead of us wasting our time griping and complaining about the condition of our nation, our state, our community, this world, God, may we exercise the urgency to share the gospel with everyone. Father, may your spirit make known into each of our hearts and our lives the things that are offensive unto you. May we confess and repent from our sin. May we live lives that are fully dedicated and committed unto you. This time of reflection, Father, I pray that as your spirit moves, that your people would also move. That they go to one another seeking forgiveness. That they turn to one another asking for prayer, support, encouragement. Father, may we not shut down in this moment, but may we continue our worship by responding to your word. Be pleased by what you see and what you hear from us today.